welcome to Inside the Junior Reactor. On this episode is Amir John Haddad, El Amir, one of the new breed of virtuoso flamenco guitarists and also named Inside the Top Five. He caught the ears of Hans Zimmer, the maestro of cinematic music. James Bond and many other films followed. I first met him on a bus traveling to Jerusalem in 2012 and immediately knew he'd be great to work with. I hope you enjoy this conversation inside the Juno Reactor. It's really nice to have you here inside the Juno Reactor, Amir. And uh, I know you're a very busy guy these days. And what have you been up to just recently? I saw you on TV the other day. Yeah, actually, this week I did a beautiful little um, interview on TV and then I uh, performed four songs. And it was here in a local TV of Malaga, which was great because it's it's really cool to engage also with the community here and yeah and share some content here. So it's it's really good and it's important, you know, the flamenco you've been, thing. You've been doing so much over the years, like from sort of Radio Tarifa all the way through your other bands uh, coming inside Juno Reactor and then going to the sort of mountaintop of working with Hans Zimmer. And uh, but like yes. going back to the very beginning, you sort of started off playing when you were eight on the sort of the guitar, yeah. And yeah, more is... or less, you know, more or less. Is... I was a little boy, six, <laughs> seven, eight. That was what that was the time when I started to, you know, to have the interest and develop in interest. My dad, he used to play guitar and the oud, and you know, it was always around, so it was just a matter of of picking it up and trying to to experience it. Did you first start like on the oud then? Is that like your first beginning? You know, maybe the oud was the first instrument I probably heard before, like, you know, in the belly of my mum. And <laughs> uh, that was the first instrument. I don't know. My dad would play it all the time. So then he also got interested in flamenco guitar and then he started playing flamenco guitar. And that's how I also evolved towards the flamenco guitar. So I was brought up with those two instruments, you know, picking style with the oud and then the finger picking with the flamenco guitar. And what was your dad doing in, um, in, cause I think you were born in Germany, weren't you? Yeah. My parents, you know, my dad coming from a Palestinian background, my mom from a Colombian background and her father was from Hamburg. So I'm, I have all these three mixes and, uh, basically they were in Germany and they were studying both of my parents. And uh, my dad was into science, but his love for his culture and his music always remained. And he had started to play um, his instrument, the oud, when he was also young. So it's it's something that he had there, but he never dedicated himself on a professional level, so to say. I mean, this always sort of gets me. I don't know when I really started getting into flamenco personally. I mean, I was a bad student at classical. Although I, I, I did actually, there was a period of my life when I was like playing eight hours a day and loving every wow. moment of not doing anything else. Um, yeah. But it, that was very classical sort of style of guitar. And I think it was after that. And then hearing people like Packard of Lucia play on films, like there was a film, a British film called The Hit. And the two guitarists okay. were Packard of Lucia and Eric Clapton. Wow, and I just loved that film. I mean, you can't find that film hardly at all now. And so I haven't I heard, heard about it. 
When I heard Packet of Lachia, I was like, wow, I mean, this is, what is this? And then I sort of got listening more and more and more and obviously, you know, buying CDs, I think it was around 1984. And there's something in in flamenco music that I really love, this sort of inbuilt torture, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that comes from, I don't know, just sort of um, tragedy. Yeah, it has, it has this very, very emotional element and passionate element. Mm. And it's like almost like a majestic sense of, of um, loss and that really gets right inside my sort of being. That, that's what I really love about it. And I, this is what I love about hearing your flamenco style as well. And then looking mm. back at it again, sort of today and I was thinking I'd like to know more about how Amir feels about the flamenco thing and then looking at things like the Inquisition of like 1492 and then sort of looking thinking how horrifyingly similar it was to our western world's recent past in Germany with Nazism and like how much of that was like economic you know, a way of like the the king and queen, I think what Ferdinand and Isabella to really take a whole society, abuse them because of their religion and then steal, ultimately steal as much money as they could out of them, throw out 300,000 Jews out of Israel, the gypsies and everything. And around this time, this is like the sort of chemistry of early flamenco. Yeah, would you... Is that something that you you resonate with? I resonate with it to a certain point because, of course, I mean, everything that culturally happened in Spain and especially in the south of Spain, Andalusia, um, for sure had an impact on forming what we nowadays know as flamenco. And as far as I know, of course, you know, the influence of the gypsies, they came about 500 years ago to, to Spain and their strain comes from the Punjab, north of India, through all the, like the Silk Road countries until they get to Middle East. And then uh, the gypsies who ended up in Andalusia, they came through North Africa. And then there's the other strain who went north of the Mediterranean and landed in the Balkan area and then spread around Europe. So you can see those both strains and, and both um, strains coming from the same origin, so to say, they evolved into something different. Um, accordingly to the countries and cultures they 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 were involved with when on their passing, so of course uh, all that that baggage, that cultural baggage they uh, they took along until they reached um, Andalusia also had an influence, and then eight hundred years of um, of the Arabic Empire within Andalusia and all that influence, and so it's really amazing how. Flamenco music, I mean, you know, people say, well, the pure flamenco, uh, but pure flamenco is based, I think, on centuries of blending cultures. and, and Yeah, what's pure flamenco? I will explain what it's to mean, what it's to the orthodox flamenco people who think what is pure flamenco. So okay. to me, pure flamenco is a pure expression of an emotion within a very characteristic frame of musical and, and rhythmical frame that establishes the music in, in, in flamenco. But it's it's a a very pure expression of it, and um, 
for people who are more orthodox, who always try to defend that, you know, the pure flamenco, these are very strict and, and very uh, precise and specific forms of, of the chants and of playing melodically and not going out of these um, patterns. I mean, very structured, the, yeah. very structured stuff. Yeah. Um, it's a little bit like saying um, we have, um, I don't know, like um, there's like super Irish folk music and then we have uh, Enya who's taken it to a, like a different world with different sounds and but it's evolved into something maybe, you know, um, or just saying all oh, the blues. You know? And then we have like fusion funk blues, which sounds so different because it evolves into something else. So, so with like traditional, very traditional flamenco, you have a structure like the 12 bar blues and you have set sort of rhythm changes and chord changes. And yeah, you establish a certain harmonical bass and rhythmical bass and also melodic characteristic and you you move around this 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 structure somehow i mean people like paco de lucia like you mentioned before they based themselves on that structure on that traditional structure and then would just uh flooded with different harmonies and playing rhythmically around the the basic structure so that it becomes more interesting and un more unpredictable it's these guys who made actually pure flamenco become something that has grown into something absolutely international nowadays. So why was Paco de Lucia such a, you know, the Jimi Hendrix of flamenco? First, he had um, a very amazing virtuoso talent on a technical level. He developed in his first 10 to 15 years of, of growing and practicing a very high level of control of the instrument. And that allowed his inner um, urge and feeling and emotion that he, and passion that was driving him musically, that allowed him to be very expressive and to have many, many options and letting many things out because he was so in charge and control of his instrument that he just could translate whatever he occurred and felt into music, which, you know, just like Mozart, when he was a little boy, he was already virtuoso and just plays and things come out, you know? And I think that was the first thing. And then his eager attitude of working and, and practicing and learning and absorbing and redoing and like nonstop. And every every little anecdote we hear about him is always like, oh, yeah, he, didn't, he would never stop. He would always have the guitar. He would always record himself every day and play. And, you know. How does that make you feel? <laughs> Are you... Do you feel the do you, you know, feel the same urges to like I, I can't I can't put down my guitar because Paco Lucia didn't or or do you find <laughs> you, <can? laughs> um, you know the idea is of course I've I've spent many many hours especially in the first ten to fifteen years it was nonstop it was it was the only thing I I could imagine of of course I would do other stuff but that was like a main focus because I saw that the instrument for me somehow was a vehicle to be someone else or to not someone else, but to express things that I had inside, which were more difficult to express verbally or, and I like that surreal mystical thing of music that you feel things, you, you have thoughts and you translate it into something else like this energy flow that mm. is, um, that you change into a different thing and then you can communicate with people. Um, of course, we, we always, as a flamenco guitarist, you had that image of Paco de Lucia as a reference, you know, wow, the technical thing, the musical way and, and his passion. And of course, you'd want to reach that level or you want to go towards that at least, you know. 
But soon I realized, um, and I'm very, um, I'm very thankful and lucky that I realized, and it wasn't really through other people, it was through my own experience, that I realized from the big maestros, we never have to copy them. We have to learn from them and learn what attitude made them express like they did. Um, I don't want to pretend be uh, as fast or faster or slower or anything than anybody else. I just pretend to get to a personal level where I can express what I have inside and then technique is accordingly um, improving um, to that also. And so I think it's a good advice also for young people. It's good to have references and idols because that's what's, what keeps you driving and what keeps you going. But then it's good not to copy them, but learn from what they, what and how they do it. And uh, that's Steal what I like from doing them. whenever I... Steal yes, from like, them, like yeah. They did, like they did from others, you know? And you steal from them in a good way and you change it into what you do. And that's what I do when I learn also other repertoires by other guitarists. Since I like electric guitar, then maybe I listen to a song of Joe Satriani or Steve Vai, and I like, okay, let's work on this song and see what comes up. I basically learn the main melodies and the structure. And whenever the solos come, I try to, to come up with my own ideas and see how I can fit into that musical world. And eventually this will uh, I think that's a really good thing. It's, it's more improvisational then. It's much more improvisational learning and because I think with classical music is it's so structured that mm. I mean I found that with learning certain instruments <laughs> it became so structured it, it annoyed me that you yeah. know just technique 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 and then it's sort of like you're playing all of these amazing melodies from whoever it is Beethoven Bach Mozart some of the modern guys. And you're going, well, how can I ever compete? How can I ever be make a melody as good as that, you know? And yeah. the thing is, you don't have to. <laughs> you don't have oh. to. You can write something really simple and it still has a bigger, it can have a big effect. But um, it would be interesting to, like, just to hear you play a little bit, like some of the sort of, what do they call them, piccados? Yeah, I mean, the different, the different techniques, you know, I have my flamenco guitar here. And basically, you know, um, the flamenco guitar and the classical guitar, they share a very similar technical approach in terms of the different techniques you have, you know. Um, there is, um, what there's differences in the hand position and the way we attack the strings in flamenco music to get a different sound and, and establish a different agility just because of the way and, and, and the the uh, angles we established, there is a different way and different speeds and different possibilities. And um, basically what, um, what Paco de Lucia was amazing at, technically speaking, uh, besides his genius uh, musicality, but that was his technique and these two finger strokes, you know, that these picado, and he would engage very fast. <laughs> And this is really something that is, uh, it takes a lot of practice because it's a very difficult to be precise, but it's a very rewarding technique because you can be playing melodies and melodic lines effortlessly. And especially that nice attack to have with a round sound that is um, so different. You know, the classical are more, they're more like playing like this. And even the picados, they're more like, a little bit softer and somehow in the flamenco music 
without even pressing more, we get a little bit like a more spicy sound somehow. It's just a different, it's, it's all based on, on the culture and, and the vibe of the people that uh, wanted to project a certain sound and emotion and, and that's how it is. And, but definitely flamenco and the flamenco guitar is, is, is so rhythmical and it's based on right hand control also left, but this right hand, you know, very precise rasguados and, and finger combinations that are not just randomly, they're really precise into certain rhythmical patterns. And once you figure out all those combinations you have, and you know, I did, I did this with you, like incorporated in certain songs where you apply those techniques and and you just apply to other rhythms and other melodies. And it's just amazing how the flamenco guitar has allowed me to gain a very solid bass on an instrument, technically and melodically. And in flamenco, it's very intuitive, very improvisational. Um, it's different than in jazz, because jazz maybe is more based on a harmonica structure. And then with a scale, you can improvise on those harmonies. And in flamenco, it's basically a scale like we talk in Indian music, a raga, we take like a, a mood and we use that scale rhythmically. So if we have this scale and we would play in a bulerias rhythm that is like a 12-8 structure, so we go. And I'm not thinking necessarily now in melodic structures. I'm thinking in terms of rhythmical and this is interesting it's a whole different mm. approach and i think that's the far eastern element that comes um from north india through the oriental music also that rhythmical aspect of it have you started the series of your uh online guitar tutorials and is that is that all up and yeah, running yeah i finished yeah, I finished. Uh, I mean, I was last year, 2021, I was busy recording all these videos in Spanish and in English. So I, I could be able to um, to offer both versions. And right now we have started to launch the Spanish version um, because I, the English version, I, it still need to be edited and to make corrections and things. We needed to separate a little bit the launchments because the language marketing wise is different for Spanish speaking countries yeah. than English, so it was difficult to combine everything. But yeah, it's out there and I'm doing these online webinars. Um, people can access through uh, my Instagram and some ads we do to engage with the people and capture their leads. And then they can be part of the webinar and there I explain how it works and then people can enter the program from there. So that's, that's a little a, bit the that's process. That's amazing now, isn't it? That, this, that we're living in this age of being able to be taught by someone like yourself and we're hundreds of miles it away is. it's it's amazing i think it's amazing it, it is amazing because if i would have had access to a guitar method like that so many things would have been clearer from the beginning of course everything i had to go through also defines who i am and and and, and makes me have my own experience yeah. uh, and again i think um in terms of generational evolution it's great that we leave a knowledge that others can pick up on and maybe become even 
more or greater or different. And that is the beauty of it. I think it's stunning. The best thing about COVID for me was picking up the viola and yeah. starting like a whole journey where yeah. for me, it doesn't matter that I, I'm more likely will never be that good anyway, but it doesn't matter. I just love playing it. it. And it's like meditational. I love looking at other people's work, learning to sight read on it and these type of things. Also, when I'm when I'm sort of spread around with buttons and computers and synthesizers, which I love, you know, yeah. it's just that yeah. ability to get direct to an emotion. You know, you don't have to wind it in. You don't have to work around it. You don't have to build a landscape. You can just go, boom, you're there. And yeah. I think nowadays, I think nowadays it's more for like electronic musicians, it's really important that they learn an instrument, an acoustic oh, instrument, definitely. you know? That's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, music will always remain music. Uh, and if you pretend to make music on any level with any um, with any tool, I mean, who cares what the tool is, actually? It can be the most avant-garde electronical mm. tool. But still, what you say, the knowledge about what sounds good, what emotions am I transmitting I mean, and and you, I think what what is so remarkable about what I what when I heard you for the first time when we met was that ability of um, having those electronical amazing sounds, but make them sound orchestral all the way through, and then these analog elements of real people, you know, putting in these this energy. That was just because I've I've never really was into electronic music, you know. Here and there, some house and things you would listen out there when you would go out, but I would I had never bought any electronic music myself. You know, the mo you know as electronic as it got was hip hop. You know, with the drum beats. You know, and uh, and maybe some industrial metal where they would put some um, crazy sound in there. But then that this was uh, really amazing when I heard. But I your think stuff. that I think that whole mix mixing of fusion but i've always loved that even from the days of when i had a band called the flowerpot men you know mm -hmm. it was electronics acoustic guitar and cello about the most uncommercial yeah. combination of anything i could think of at the time and yeah, yeah it was <laughs> stupid but fun no of course yeah i think the um the main thing generally you know no matter what we do and this is something that i always i also want to transmit in that um guitar method it's about a transformation. So this guitar method is thought to be a transformational experience. And it's um, thought to be for any kind of level, even if you don't know how to play the guitar, if you have access to any kind of Spanish-looking guitar with nylon strings, you can start learning. Uh, so you don't need to have like a 4,000 uh, euro uh, guitar to start well, that. Speaking, speaking of the price, yeah, your luthier... Say Salinas. He makes, he makes your guitars for you. Yeah, it's it's the guitars. These ones here, my own custom model, signature model. Speak. Yeah, how much do these cost? These cost four thousand two hundred. Wow. And uh, of course, they're like mm, absolutely natural aged woods and dried, and really just he always uses the best quality woods, and it's just really amazing. I love and those guitars. And this one, for example, is a cypress body, which is uh, very common in flamenco guitars. That's my favorite. And Look, those are my favorite ones. 
Yeah, and then the top is a cedar top, which makes it a little bit softer, but it has a very clear output. And it just, I like that combination. And with like, say like a flamenco guitars, classical guitars, I heard that unlike violins or violas, cellos, double basses, they seem to sort of um, get better as they get older. But I was told that, yeah. that like with flamenco guitars, they actually deteriorate after a while. Is that true? There are guitars that might deteriorate and there are also guitars. I mean, I we don't actually have, this is the thing. We don't have guitars that are over two or 300 years old. There are guitars from the 1920s and you can... Well, the first guitar I had, because I said to my mama, you know, I wanted to get a guitar and learn classical guitar. So she went to um, this, I think it was called the Swap Shop in Croydon. Uh-huh. And she saw a guitar there for £10, but it was broken. Mm-hmm. And uh, she repaired instruments. She repaired anything she could get her hands on. She bought it and brought it back and redid it up. And that was my first guitar. But what was amazing about it was that it was a really thin sort of flamenco guitar and you'd hold it up to the light and you could almost see the light shine through the wood. It had this sort of translucent quality to it. Yeah, there's differences um, between the classical and the flamenco guitar. Classical normally have a little bit, from what I think, a little bit wider body, mm, just a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, of course, the... Um, you know, the, the, the width of the wood here and there, depending on the amount of bass or trebles or mids you want to achieve, it's different. Normally, a flamenco guitar is is also a little bit lighter. And the action, what is what is the big difference is the action normally is lower than a classical guitar because you, you, you want to achieve a different sound. And actually, that makes you also be uh, faster and more elaborate, so to say, yeah. uh, agile. I used to go and see things like Rodriguez Guitar Concerto at the Croydon mm-hmm. Fairfield yeah. Halls and stuff. And I mean, that was one of my favorite, which is sort of very flamenco inspired, I suppose, classical piece. Yes. It has and especially of- people like John Williams mm-hmm. play it. And then you've got Miles Davis will do like an interpretation of it. And I think Packard yeah. Lucia did an, an interpretation of it as well. And you hear the difference of Paco de Lucia and John Williams. And John Williams is this really amazing, purist, classical guitarist. But he never had that edge of blood, I suppose, the way it was brought up. And I think what is the character of the big big difference, I mean, I know that many classical people uh, from the classical world uh, criticized Paco for his version because until, until then, no one else, just classical guitarists, had been in, in, interpreting this whole mm. piece. But I think from from what I know and from what Paco told, that he said that he actually played all the notes and everything in the rhythm tight, just like it had to be. And that was where he saw his his little path, where he said, I'm going to play tight, as tight with that rhythmical passion and le- because wherever maybe other guitarists would be a little bit just like at libidum to get to reach the point he would go and just do it you know and that was just 
overwhelming for many. And yeah. of course, he has a different sound. He he was never aiming to imitate a classical guitarist. So I mean, yeah, I loved never... I loved that approach of it, and I loved yeah. it as even you know I can't even remember when I heard the difference, but it was um, light and day for me. That's why I love. Although, like we've had a few incursions into flamenco inside Juno Reactor with things like Conquistador Part One, where Eduardo Nuebla played, or sort of like Return of the Pistolero, where you're playing, uh, Pistolero, where Steve Stevens is playing. I'd love um, one day to orchestrate and be able to um, have an acoustic, a real flamenco version of Pistolero, in particular, just because the tune is so strong. Yeah, and and I mean maybe we could even incorporate it into then sort of Return of the Pistolero and Pistolero sort of combined yeah. with all of the yeah. ideas. You know that might and be it, really yeah. nice because in Pistoleros it's only really the main tune. You go, wow, that tune is really bang. But then inside Return of the Pistolero, we've got all of your oud playing and yeah. all of the other things. But it it would be, I just think it would be really a real fun thing to try and organize at some point. It would be great. We could call it the ultimate Pistolero. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pistolero resurrected. Yeah. Uh, but, and so sort of like leading on to films, um, <laughs> you've sort of taken your flamenco and you've taken it into the world of Hans Zimmer and that must be such an amazing experience. When you've been doing the Hans Zimmer tour, what's the biggest mistake you've ever done? My biggest mistakes were continuous in each song. Really? <laughs> you know, I like to risk things, as you know me. Mm. And uh, of course, I like, you know, I learned the tune and, I, and then, but the, I also had what I was very lucky with, and, and, and then we can come back to this, um, that Hans had always... Um, a very generous way of letting us be who we are within his music. And um, even live, he's sort of saying, yes, oh, you, and you can like take it to other places live. Yeah. So of course there were big orchestral arrangements and all the, and all the structure you have to know, but there were pieces, at least in my case, I had a lot of freedom because I had some of the guitar solos that were really at libidum and I could each night, come up with different ideas and, and, and grow into the song. And that was, and that's when I say that that's where I make the mistakes because of course, and he would always say, make sure to play all the wrong notes with a lot of passion, you know, <laughs> and, and he himself, he would encourage us to, to be creative on the spot and, and to be who we are. And so that's what I say. My biggest mistakes were every night because I was always on a quest, always risking myself and to challenge myself also. Do you ever sort of get like a blank thing where you suddenly go, bollocks, I can't think of what's what's the next thing is, what I've got to do here? Or The funny thing is, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a tight uh, show that you don't even have time to go blank. And then, and the other thing is, if you do so, if you miss your entry, I mean... Everybody else will continue because they're on cue and they're with the, with the scores and everything goes, you know. So it's that that these milliseconds of damn, where am I? What did I do? <laughs> Bam! I have to focus again, you know. It's, you can't allow yourself to to let yourself go. And uh, we had this very nice uh, phrase we would, we used to say before hitting the stage with the bass player with Juan, and we always said, you know, 
forbidden to think, forbidden to think. Because if you if you get caught up in thinking, well, you're immediately somewhere else. So it really was connecting always with that here and now and that present moment of delivering and connecting with each note and everything you played. And that was a great experience. Again, you know, this is something I usually do, but again, there we had to refine that attitude and be very precise about really speaking with your instrument to the audience. And, and a lot of the best live sort of reactions Oh, when you just react, you don't think. You just react to the moment. Yeah. The mistakes are the well, best. True. You have to connect with mm. your surrounding, with what comes into your ears, and that's the, that's the real reality of that moment. What's your favorite piece that you do with Hans Zimmer? I mean, there is one that I enjoyed a lot, of course, because I had a lot of um, uh, main stage presence and, and, and as a soloist that was my big song was the, the Mission Impossible song which goes yeah. like. Are you doing that in 5-4? No, that one is in 6-8. So that was a 6-8, and that reminded me of the Buleria rhythm we have in flamenco. Mm. So it was really great because I could... Um, play with the main melody that Hans and his team had composed back in the days. And for example, the main melody goes. So what I did was just make ornaments. So you would have the essence of the melody, but I would take it to Andalusia and make a whole different thing. And, and 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 he encouraged me. He's like, play, do it, do it. And and it was really beautiful to have that experience of somebody like him encouraging every each and one of us to to be himself within his music. And that is that has been, I think, the the biggest gift I've experienced um, by working with him. And working with him, do you find him a very generous man, emotionally and creatively? Then in the studio. Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, he has a huge work capacity. The amount of uh, commitment, passion and hours he puts into what he does is just endless, you know. And his um, his source of creativity is also connected and it's just beautiful, you know. And every input, even sometimes he will give you just very simple sounding inputs, especially when you record for for a movie. He He might just tell you, you know, think that, her mother is dying in that moment or something, or, or she's remembering this and this. So it's not even telling you, talking to you about like harmonic things and melodies. It just puts you into that environment where you connect with it and then you deliver. And he just has that capacity of, of extracting things from you just by suggesting ideas and, and, and thoughts and, and circumstances. Which film, which film has been your favorite one to do? My favorite experience uh, were two films I did, and then the other f- experiences was also great. Um, these were not in his studio, but like recording here from my studio. So it was remote recording. It was fun, but it's not the same vibe no. when you um, are connected together and you're working on something. So my first experience was, uh, you know, I had I had worked with him for a while already, and then I went to Los Angeles to attend the NAMM show in 2019. And um, somehow we got connected to his assistant over there. And then 
uh, we said, you know, maybe we call and if he is around, maybe we can have a chat, a coffee, just say hello at his studio. And we were lucky enough that uh, he had been some some um, appointments he had got canceled, so he had more time for us. So we ended up hanging out at the studio for many hours. And after having a very nice conversation, um, that was basically the first time we actually sat down together, uh, besides the moments of the concerts and stuff like that. And it was just great because we were talking about just things of life and how we felt and how things were happening. And then I just asked him, and what are you working on right now? He's like, you know, it's this film I'm doing. And uh, wait a minute, maybe I have a job for you. And then he just <laughs> handed me this uh, guitar that was a uh, five string uh, guitar, double strings, steel string. And it was made out of a dynamite box from, I don't know, 1852 wow. or something. Like, you know, some. And then he had this cool guitar and he's like, can you play this? And I'm like, okay, can I like tune it my way? He's like, yeah, do whatever you want. And then we went to the studio and I ended up recording this uh, guitar and my own guitar for a film called The Rhythm Section with Jude Law and, and um, I haven't seen Marty that Blakey. Yet. Okay. It's like a suspense uh, thriller, which is very cool. I, I, I watched the film and somewhere in the soundtrack, Finally, somewhere my, my the bazooki, no, not the bazooki, but that instrument and the, the my guitar wear. So that was the first experience of, of recording with him and for him. And we had just an amazing experience. And then everything went on, of course. And then, you know, the shows and tours. And when the pandemic hit, he uh, had also a beautiful gesture towards us. And he said, you know, there's, uh, I want to involve all the musicians I'm working with remotely here and there. And uh, so he said, I'm working on these films and I will be sending out some cues and things you, you guys can uh, collaborate on. And that was the remote. How'd you find the remote ones? It was the first time I did that because I always had been always going to studios and record for me or for other people. And that in the beginning, it was a little bit uh, different because I never had uh, worked myself actually with all the tools and all the, you know, the, the technology. But then, of course, you know, you, 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 you learn it and you, it's, there's no other way. And actually, it made me feel very good because they gave me some inputs, but they again left me, you know, do what you want, be creative with it. You know, you need to have a certain level uh, as a musician when in, uh, getting involved in a certain level. But um, then again, it's all about what you bring into the scene, so to say. And that mm. is really great because... You send some files. If they still want something additionally, okay, you know, do it a little bit more into that direction. But basically, I was lucky in that sense and, and fortunate to to be able to always come up with little ideas that would fit into their soundtrack or music or song, and and it's just rewarding. And then the other one, the the one that I really enjoyed was my participation in the James Bond movie, where uh, one day he just. Um, uh, let me know. It's like, you know, there is a, a great project I want you to be involved with. Um, let me know if you can come to London. So, and basically that was for the Bond movie there. Wasn't that a particularly difficult journey for you or something? It was an odyssey. <laughs> I've never had so much pressure inside while uh, traveling towards a production because I was in the South Pacific Ocean on an island um, owned by Guy La Liberté, the founder of Cirque du Soleil. And he had invited many musicians from around the world 
to stay there for like, uh, was it 10 to 15 days and, and compose music for some house tracks and just making a, a, a community vibe kind of a collective a recording session. And there I, I met Rory Kaplan, who is, is a, a synthesizer and piano player. Um, he was known, especially known for the Victory Tour and recording all the synths for Michael Jackson. And he's, he's in his mid-60s uh, now, and he's just an amazing guy, an amazing musician. And he knows all the guys. I mean, he used to program the synths for Chick Corea in the electric band back in the day. So he's a, he's a genius, you know. So we were involved with all these amazing musicians. And then I had to travel from that little island and, and get in time to London. What was the island you were on? It's called Nuku Tepipi. It's a private little island somewhere a thousand miles south of Tahiti. I love Tahiti. that idea. It's really yeah, it's, funny. It's amazing. It's beautiful because it's it's that little natural reserve uh, which they take care of, and it's and everything you know, no mosquitoes because all the containers are taken care of before they leave any other place to not have any mosquitoes, and they really take. It's like a sanctuary, and and and, and Guy is a very special person, and he also uh, the whole project he has been uh, building up there is really overwhelming and beautiful. Were you able to go uh, scuba diving there? Actually, you know there were activities for us musicians, but we ended up just being in the studio and just you know we had <laughs> no. all these amazing musicians around. No. And the productions were just amazing, you know, recording sessions until late at night and starting in the morning the whole day. And then uh, it was just amazing. And we knew that we wanted to lay down as many tracks as possible. And but the, the, the hours in between work were just amazing, you know, going out on a catamaran or just hanging out at the beach or at the bar drinking something. And it was it's just beautiful. It's a real, real, uh, real experience. So you had to get from... This little place to London in what an two hours or something? Yeah, the uh, the initial idea was me flying back to Malaga, leaving all my equipment because I had many instruments for that island trip, leaving my equipment, and then the next day take a flight only with my guitar, you know, fresh, and get to the studio and do my recording. But everything went, you know, the other way, and there was a big storm. There were two big storms in the Pacific Ocean, so. Neither way planes could fly, nor, the, nor from L.A. to Tahiti, nor from Tahiti to L.A. So we lost 24 hours. And with that, we lost our connection from L.A. to Paris. And then I lost, of course, my connection to Malaga. So um, we had to um, rebook flights somehow and redirection everything so that I could have my final destination to London instead of Malaga. But with all my equipment, with like five or six bags, you know, pedals, uh, flight cases, my suitcase, three or four instruments, it was a nightmare to fly like this on your own. And, uh, and then I get to Paris after like, I don't know how many hours, and I show my boarding pass, which I had. I had a boarding, physical boarding pass. And the lady says, well, you're not in the system. You don't appear on this flight. You don't have a boarding pass. You don't have a ticket. And I like, what? And I started to argue with her, of course. And, you know, this is a, 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 a huge production and I have to record there. And, and then she said, you know, the only way is you buy another plane ticket. And I said, okay, so that was this. So I go get your credit card, pay another uh, plane ticket. 
and and then I got you know in time just to get there to take a shower and uh, to go to the studio right away. And uh, but again, you know, the vibe in the studio was again smooth and great. And Hans was having a a very interesting um, session and meeting with um, Kerry Fukunaga, the director and his team. So they were they were amidst of a meeting and conversation about how to proceed and change certain uh, musical aspects of the soundtrack and elements they wanted to use. So that was interesting to be a part of this meeting and hearing what they were all sharing. And and then I had a little moment with um, Hans. He was telling me about the scenes and about the emotions he wanted. And then I was off on a taxi, on a cab, and I, we went to Stephen Lipson's studio, which is in a whole different area of London. And then I recorded at his studio. And I mean, of course, another amazing guy, you know, producer and very funny character and interesting. And, and we got along very well. So I spent the three hours there recording with him and Hans what was that for? as well. That was for the No Time to Die movie, for the James Bond movie. If you were asked to do a film yourself as a solo guitarist or as a, a sort of flamenco ensemble, which directors would you really like to work with? I love Jim Jarmusch. Um, I think it's amazing. Uh, I like David Lynch. And then, of course, I love uh, Ridley Scott. It's amazing because of his epic way of, of delivering a story and the characters he defines, you know, whether it's uh, massive uh, Romans who are killing each other. Of course, you know, of these uh, epic movies have a lot of these scenes nowadays. But... Um, I like the way he he transmits things, and I've learned that through performing some of the um, some of Hans's soundtracks. Because when you experience playing the whole Gladiator song we did, the whole that suite, um, I mean, it's amazing how when you know the film and you've heard probably already the 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 soundtrack, but then playing it, the melodic and emotional elements that are hidden behind that music. Is, is really overwhelming. Is that something you'd really like to do, write for an orchestra? I don't have the experience of writing for an orchestra. I sure could um, write melodic lines that we could assign to different um, sections, you know, for violas, for the cellos. And then, of course, you need to be very specific to, pl to compose uh, lines that are within the, uh, the temperation of that instrument, you know, the scale and possibilities, you know. Um, I would like to have that experience. I mean, I've had the experience of playing with orchestras and sometimes I come up with melodies and I think, well, you know, rather than just arranging it with guitars, it would be great to have an orchestral sound behind that. And uh, this is definitely something I would like to look into and, and evolve a little. But as I'm not classically trained, of course, um, my approach wouldn't be the, the classical way. You know, after the Matrix films and things like that, they, there was this film company, again, it was like Warner Brothers actually in Japan and another company, and they asked me to do a classical score for Brave Story. And I went prepared. I mean, I had sort of a certain amount of classical training through the choir and all of this sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And um, so I prepared myself that they might ask me for more classical, but I didn't realise they wanted like 95% orchestral, not classical, orchestral music. 
That's like, okay. I was like, why do you want me to do this? Why do you want me to do this? I'm not really known as an orchestral composer. In fact, I'm not known as an orchestral composer. And they said, we just want to hear what you do with an orchestra. And I think the same. I think it would be amazing to hear your interpretation of an orchestra with the knowledge and your background. You don't, you know, for me, I don't think it's a hindrance at all that you haven't gone through the universities of learning classical composition. I think it, it would actually be a benefit. It could be definitely a different approach. And uh, maybe I wouldn't do things in an orthodox way like uh, people would expect it from a classical arrangement, but definitely would be absolutely musically logical, you know, coming up with harmonizations and, and counterpoints and playing around and, and using each segment of an orchestra, especially for an emotional purpose. This is what I've heard in Hans's music. And Is it and fair to say with Hans Zimmer that Hans Zimmer is a composer, one, but he's also a conductor of many composers, so that his productions, although they bear his brand, he pulls in a lot of people yeah. who, who are extremely knowledgeable in their areas. Like, I, I'm not always a massive fan about Hans Zimmer soundtracks, but I thought June mm -hmm. was amazing on this sort of yeah. shimmering these shimmering sounds and then, I mean, occasionally it gets a bit Walt Disney with the really big voice and all of this stuff, but I was blown away by it. You know, I really like some of his shift and tone sort of techniques as mm. well, but I thought it just fitted the film so brilliantly. And I think, you know, your things would really work with like Del Toro and that sort of Pan's Labyrinthian mm -hmm. and the Spanish Civil War and all of this. I, I thought it would be perfect to have that sort of musical approach. The interesting thing is, you know, um, also, you know, in my case, of course, I play flamenco guitar, but as you know, I've gone through so many different music styles and not only trying to play a little bit, but really dig into uh, other music styles. I love your speed metal stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> when you were playing that first, um, you're doing oh, like yeah. little scales. <laughs> this one, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you arrange this, I mean, you could come up with like that the would be great. craziest definitely. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> In the sort of Juno world, it's been a real pleasure to have you on stage because you do react to improvisation and um, yeah. having fun on stage. And, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, yeah. Elemental, uh, basic elements. I'm talking about the fun elements. I always like to share this little anecdote when we first played together first time. And I had so many, so you sent me like 25 songs to go through. And of course, you know, the set list was finally only maybe 15 of them. And then I had so, like many instrument changes because I remember at the time I would play like three instruments or something. So I always would know, need to know when I had to change. And <laughs> I remember asking you about the set list, you know, what's the set list I need to write down? And you're like, yeah, we'll figure out, you know, and, <laughs> and it went on the whole day and, and during sound check. And I would eventually ask you once in a while and, and yeah, yeah, we'll figure out. And then we actually were literally walking 
onto the stage, you know, lights out, we're dressed and everybody goes on. I'm like, Ben, what are we going to play? And you're like, first Final Frontier, then God is God, Invisible, and then we just take it from there. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I know I had a bad habit in those days. Yeah, but the band format allowed it back in those days. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the, the lineup we had allowed that freedom. And because all these elements of Hamsika and uh, Mali and all these people just coming in. And uh, I remember, you know, I was just maybe dancing and you would come up behind me, just say, Amir, go up front. And then I knew <laughs> I just had to go wild, you know, and that was great. You know? I thought some of the funny ones were like when um, we stopped the computer and then we just start making up a song oh, yeah. as we go along. And... And then oh, yeah. afterwards, I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm sure people must think that's such a load of old bollocks. But it, it felt good. It felt really good to do it at the time. It felt good. It was that very moment of essence. And people would react amazingly to it because somehow they got from this, like, massive world of sound, they got, you know, concentrated into that pure, like, kind of rocky, mm. vibey thing we did. And and then again, bang, back to the sounds. Yeah. You know, it was really great. Do you ever do that on your flamenco shows? Can you improvise in these sort of st song structures where everything is so on the nose? Um, I, I mean, when you have so many musicians on stage, I like to have like a structure. And then, of course, I leave space for soloings or things like that. But actually, the, com the compositional part of my melodies is structured so that a bass player can follow me. Otherwise it would be too difficult yeah, to yeah. just randomly try to catch mm. me because it's really a very elaborated. Um, but then for example, whenever I use flamenco singers and they have their part, I leave that space and I, I will never tell them what to sing unless it's like a chorus type of a melody. I want them to sing within one of my songs, but then I was like, you know, here, that's your space. Just, do what you know and and do what you do best and same with the dancers i never tell them what to do i tell them you know here and there these are melodies i'm playing which are signals for everybody to come back in and uh so even if it looks structured there's many moments where where there is actually uh, improvisation going on with flamenco again people like Paco de Lucia brought it into a new era and people regard you as one of the top five guitarists of the new generation of flamenco playing. Mm -hmm. And where would you see flamenco in like 20 years time? Can you, do you see which alleyways it can go down, develop, evolve? Or is it just a question of more fusion? I think there will be, um maybe let's say three tendencies that I can see. One thing is always the people who preserve the essence, you know, those orthodox people, they will always, and this is, this is actually something good, you know, it's not always it's bad that people criticize the new things. It's nice to have a certain community, a collective community that says, no, this is the real deal. And it's good they preserve it. So I think these uh, pure sounds will always um, remain. Then we will have... Um, the, the, the thing that you just said, the fusions, fusions with other styles and coming up with different ideas in that sense and taking the guitar to different levels. And um, that's what I also try. It's not about only my own personal view of things, but somehow the, putting the guitar into 
soundtracks, the flamenco guitar. I mean, Paco has done it, but not many other people. So it's nice to have that experience and, uh, and maybe also combine it more with all the other music styles I like to play. And then there will be another path, I think, which we can see nowadays where, where more pop or mainstream um, artists or industries will use elements of that sound to enhance their uh, music or to, to even give their music an argument, you know. Uh, and there are many, um, there are many um, artists out there right now who use these sounds as something exotic as something they can rely on and say, okay, I'm this and that. And, and I think basically that's, that's what's going to happen. Technically it's already on such a high level. I mean, just like saying electric guitar, you know, there's young kids shredding their instruments, just like amazing. I mean, they're lacking of certain emotions and expressions, but the, the level is beautiful. It's amazing to see that. And so is in flamenco. So what I think it will be more and more, fusion of musicians not necessarily music styles but different mm. musicians who come together and therefore they will come up with new sounds have you ever thought of this sort of abstraction of um, flamenco guitar where you would go to a chic sort of restaurant and they give you a cheesecake and it's in sort of five different bits and you have to sort of work out what is what you know the abstraction of uh, <laughs> flamenco almost to a point of like a you know, Penderecki or Leggetti, sort of the Polish avant-garde. Have you ever come across guitarists that have taken it into an avant-garde area? There are guitarists who try to come up uh, with a different environment for, you know, to arrange it differently mm. or mix it with instruments that are really to totally the opposite from what we would understand in flamenco. Nowadays, you have the hung. I have friends who play that and they play it within the flamenco music also. And um, some people are using uh, some electronics sounds to, to mix within some flamenco songs, but it's still not um, defined. But I think, and this is something I want to also experience, because one thing is composing a, a music style, in this case flamenco, that will be consumed or appreciated by people who are very much into that scene, into yeah. that niche. And sometimes as an instrumentalist, I think we've all done this, um, this mistake that is just, you know, playing your instrument and you just think in the frame of your instrument. And I think this is something we have to get detached from because finally it's just a vehicle. And two or three days ago, I started working on one of my, favorite, so to say, ballads, which is by Joe Satriani. It's called Always With Me, Always With You. It's it's an old song he had. Mm. And... So it's really beautiful. And I can imagine playing something like this because it's not thought to show how cool I am on instrument. It's really thought about being very musical. And yeah. the, the more I grow into what I do, this is uh, the, the thing I want to connect with, even if I want to go shredding, but it should be a musical thing behind it. Out of all the shredders, who are your favorite shredders? Um, well, I started out the first shredding, I think I heard, because I somehow... You know, growing up in a Colombian and Palestinian 
family, I wasn't necessarily exposed like any other kids, you know, to like Hendrix and the um, all the the hippie movement and all the rock and, and all the rock and roll from the fifties, and then all the evolution. I I'd never gone through this because the music I heard was classical music, Arabic music, uh, South American folklore, and whatever I could catch on the radio stations in Germany, like funk rock, and I would hear all these other sounds and uh, or the pop music, whatever. And so I somehow started differently because when I uh, I turned twelve. And my best buddy at the time, his elder brother, he, he was 16, and he had this cassette. He gave it to us, and it was Metallica, Ride the Lightning and Kill Em All, the first two albums. And that was the first, like, rock, really, music or metal. And I'm like, what is that? That sound is amazing. And that's what catched me. So I started off with Metallica, actually. And, of course, these solos were, all, back in the days, were just overwhelming for me. And um, and that's how I started to get involved with electric electric guitar because I wanted to be able to play these sounds, and then I would go on and I would consume all the metal that was around the era I was living in. It's basically, you know, end of eighties, um, mid eighties to nineties, and then all the nineties, the change of that metal. And then, of course, by digging deeper, I would go back in history and back in time and and finding all these other amazing bands who actually were the predecessors of all that, you know, um, starting from Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin and, and of course, Hendrix and all these guys, Robin Trower, which is, is just amazing to me. And uh, so it was like a different, like a different evolution for me. And, uh, but somehow that shredding attitude or that musicality behind that, that um, attitude really got to me. And then I was, of course, not only by each lead guitarist of all of these bands, which were amazing, but also the soloists, just like Joe Satriani, Steve Vai, and and many many other names who who made their own solo careers as instrumental shredders. And this is, so to say, my my world in terms of um, the sounds I use, and um, it's more the '80s metal sound combined with the '90s, where it got a little bit fatter and, and different, and uh, I love it. I think it'd be wonderful one day if we could ever get a show where you, Steve, and Sagizo all come on and do the guitars. We've even had that meeting on uh, Zoom, wasn't it, through COVID, where we were going, yeah, let's yeah. do this track, and I just yes. haven't been of the right mind to sort of get in, get back to that idea. But it is something I'd love to do, where we involve... But that would be amazing. All of you. I mean, fantastic. all three of us, we have uh, an acoustic side to us and the electric side. So each one of us is so different and so eclectic within his own style. And and it would be like also something generational. You know, it's beautiful to have Steve Stevens. I mean, his career and his work has been in rock history. So important. And then you have, have these have that chain of artists. It's just a great idea you had there. I'm really looking forward. Whenever it's the moment, we will. We, yeah, we, well, we, I hope it will come soon. Well, I've taken up quite a lot of your time already, so thanks for coming along and uh, joining us inside the Juno Reactor. And it's been you. a pleasure to listen to all of the stories and about flamenco and everything. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. For me, it's a huge pleasure. And I mean, I know we share many things on different levels and it's just great to to be part of your life and have you in my life. So I'm really thankful. Thank you. 
Thanks again to Amir John Haddad, El Amir, for joining us inside the Juno reactor. Thanks to Maro at Kenji Productions for producing these shows. And if you want to follow these podcasts, do hit subscribe, the like button, or place a review, as this helps our visibility on certain platforms. And hopefully visit us again inside the Juno reactor. Thank you.